welcome. And today I'm super excited to welcome Justin Bates um, as our guest, uh, where we are going to talk about the future of pharmacy, especially um, you know, with the Canadian and the Ontario um, landscape in mind. Um, Justin brings an immense experience with it, uh, with him uh, when it comes to advocacy uh, for pharmacy, because he has been a pharmacy advocate for about the last 15 years, uh, previously serving as the CEO of the Neighborhood Pharmacy Association of Canada, and now he is the uh, present CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Thank you very much, Justin, for taking your time and coming on the show. I am so, so grateful, and it's an honor to have you. Listen, I'm so excited to be here. I think uh, having a conversation about the future of pharmacy is what energizes me. And uh, certainly it's uh, timely given where we are in the pandemic and what's uh, transpired over the last 18 months. So happy to jump right into it. Uh, and let's, uh, let's, let's unpack what we can do as a, as a pharmacy profession. For sure, for sure. And um, I, as I said, like, I think, uh, you know, you have uh, definitely been an inspiring leader. Um, and I am, I'm, I'm just very honored that I have this opportunity to you know, have this discussion with you because um, I think your insights are truly valuable, um, especially with the amount of um, advocacy that you had to do um, on the go, <laughs> is what I'm going to say during the pandemic. Um, I would love to hear, um, you know, some of your insights and especially like, you know, some highlights or achievements from the pandemic uh, for our profession and pharmacy professionals, professionals in general. It's a great starting point because one of the things that I think we've we've learned is not just resiliency. Uh, but agility and the ability to adapt throughout the, the pandemic, because there was no playbook. There is nothing off the shelf that we could take and say, this is how you manage through a pandemic. And undoubtedly, uh, mistakes were made uh, and learnings uh, from there were applied to hopefully improve the way that we're delivering healthcare in general. I think if anything out of the pandemic we can take from, it's the uh, silver lining that there are gaps. We, we probably have discovered more fault lines during the pandemic than any time previously when you look at our public system of delivering healthcare uh, and certainly with long-term care and the unfortunate circumstances that many residents and their families found themselves in. And it's certainly appropriate uh, as we look at primary care, public health, and, and pharmacy. And I would say, you know, we've had lots of successes. Um, as a profession, we've had an opportunity to really demonstrate and showcase what it is that pharmacy professionals do every day. You know, that common, sometimes misperception that we're only about counting pills or dispensing has been, I think, debunked uh, by the high accessibility and the value that people have uh, placed on being able to go to what is really a healthcare hub in the community to access credible and trusted healthcare information. So while we'll continue to be a core anchor of our services in the medication management space, we have expanded out uh, the relationships to show that we can do a lot more. And whether it was things like COVID testing or looking at how we can help patients uh, manage all of the information that's being thrown at them. And we know that science communications was maybe one of the biggest hurdles we had. Information that wasn't always clearly defined or communicated confused people. And the first place they turned, and I actually remember hearing so many stories from our members about this, that you know the, the press conference would still be on the air and live and pharmacies would get calls almost uh, in real time uh, based on a government announcement. And we had to adapt so quickly because oftentimes our members were learning about new changes in policy, 
requirements and guidelines uh, as it was happening. Uh, and that made it very difficult and challenging, but I'm very proud of how pharmacy professionals stepped up to meet the challenge and really help protect public health with solutions, uh, whether it was the vaccinations or looking at even moving things virtual, like uh, uh, MedsCheck, uh, we've, we've looked at our model and we said, this is where it's going uh, and where we need to be. Uh, and we're gonna use this as an opportunity to certainly expand uh, our services and show government and the public why it's so important that we continue to build capacity in our healthcare system. We're not gonna solve this overnight. We know that fiscally it's challenging, healthcare sustainability, making sure there's enough hospital beds, that there's a safe environment within long-term care and access to GPs. The pharmacy is part of that, that solution. And what we have been able to do, and we've tested this out, uh, measured it through public opinion polling, is we're now at the dinner table conversations. People are talking about the conversation that they had with their pharmacist, the information that may have made them uh, from one point being vaccine hesitant to getting a vaccine. Uh, and that to me is a grassroots support that will translate into future success, whether it's through advocacy and government relations, public relations, but also to boost the morale of the profession. I agree. I agree. And you said that it was what, what you said about the whole dinner table conversation. I, I truly agree with it. Um, you know, I mean, I think it, there was no guessing that at one point we were the only healthcare providers that were open for business and that were actually available for our patients when they needed it, when they needed us. Um, and that has truly changed the perception. And, you know, I think there's also a research that highlights how we need to change our perception from just being the pill pushers or how we are commonly known as um, to a lot more that we are able to provide for our patients, right? Especially during this pandemic, we have taken on a lot of expanded scope of practices just to kind of help support their healthcare needs. Um, in the post-pandemic world, what do you see uh, taking place in terms of changes for the um, scope of practice of a pharmacist and a pharmacy technician? I think we really need to look at and examine what is the gaps or what are the gaps in the healthcare system. And I see really two primary gaps. The first is in routine immunizations. So what we've uh, experienced, if you look at the, the data, the gap between those who are used to get there or should be getting their routine immunizations and are actually are, is somewhere in the 30 to 40% range, depending on the, the data set. Uh, and that could be our next crisis. We saw it a few years ago in BC with outbreaks, uh, I think it was the measles or the mumps that uh, was a public health crisis pre-pandemic. And with all of the emphasis on, and, and rightly so, the COVID vaccines and testings, the, we may have a slippage there in terms of people getting their tetanus shot uh, as one example. So I do see a role for um, all healthcare providers, but certainly pharmacy professionals, and that includes technicians and pharmacists to be able to be part of all publicly funded immunizations. Uh, and I think that will be critical to addressing that gap and closing it. But also, it's all about convenience and access. Um, sure, we need to do this in a cost-effective framework and get fair and reimbursement, fair reimbursement and reasonable reimbursement. But at the end of the day, you know, we have to have a solution to the problem. And public health, uh, we've demonstrated our ability to uh, certainly uh, improve the vaccination rates, increase them. Uh, and I think that's in large part because of our expertise, the relationship, trusted relationship we have with patients and our high accessibility. So I'd put routine immunizations right up there and it's part of our proposal for the fall uh, hopeful regulatory package uh, in Ontario. 
The other one is uh, certainly longstanding. It's been over a decade of asks uh, by the Ontario Pharmacists Association, and it's really catching Ontario up with the other provinces, and that is uh, treating and, and uh, assessing minor ailments. Um, and where we are coming at this from is not to take away or to compete with another healthcare provider, but it's that crucial component of creating capacity. You're not going to uh, eliminate the need for hospital beds or access to a, a general practitioner. But what we can do is take some of the low acuity cases that can be served in the community by tapping into and leveraging the expertise, education and knowledge of pharmacists. And that's going to be obviously more convenient for families because we have 95% uh, of Ontarians live within five kilometers of a pharmacy. So if you think about that, just from managing your own health, if it's pink eye or uncomplicated, uh, urinary tract infection. These are, in some cases, can be painful, but there are both over-the-counter remedies as well as uh, prescriptions that could help, um, or even as a triage service. We look at that as perhaps the, the first point of care, if you will, first contact where a pharmacist may refer them to a specialist or you know, suggest they go home and get rest to even more severe cases that they need to go right into the emergency department. So I think that's invaluable as we look at um, trying to distill down to what is the community pharmacy of the future. Mm -hmm. um, and we're close. I think we're, we're probably, I'm very confident that we're getting close to the finish line in Ontario, not only for the scope piece on the regulatory front, but also for fair and reasonable reimbursement um, that we've proposed. So those would be our two, I would say, primary asks. There's lots more. Certainly right. point of care testing opens up uh, a myriad of opportunities for the profession um, in early diagnosis. Uh, I think of all kinds of areas we could expand on, on that front. And I think COVID testing is sort of the door opener, um, but it doesn't end there. If you think about flu testing, um, certainly uh, strep uh, throat, uh, rapid HIV testing, so many areas we could help uh, serve the population um, that would help reduce healthcare costs and increase the convenience factor. For sure. Uh, and I, I, I agree with you. Like, I think the testing piece uh, definitely was a kind of a shocker in this, in the way of how rapidly a profession adopted it. If, um, even though, you know, initially there was a little bit of a push and pull, but like, you know, over time we are seeing a major success with it. So, you know, congratulations on that. Um, and I think it definitely opens up a lot more doors. And I think if we are talking of minor ailments to a point, I would also see testing kind of go hand in hand as a package. Um, for example, like strep throat, like, you know, you would want to test somebody before you start to prescribe somebody. Um, and rapid kits are becoming available, um, you know, where you're able to get results in a fairly a few minutes, uh, which makes it a lot more easier when you're trying to make a decision of, you know, how you want to proceed further with your um, care plan with this patient, right? Um, that is, uh, and that, what I was going to ask was, so the minor ailments, like, you know, I'm seeing all these CE announcements being made and all of that. So how soon can we expect some sort of an announcement or is that something still in the works? Well, certainly being cognizant of past uh, optimism around the, the program being implemented, um, I would say that I would say I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll have the announcements in place and all of the frameworks that need to be enabled in order for us to implement uh, by the fall. Um, so there is positive dialogue going on, collaborative dialogue with a variety of different uh, departments within government, both on the uh, senior officials within the bureaucracy as well as uh, politically. So I think there certainly is widespread support for all allied health professions getting expanded scope and practicing to the maximum amount of their expertise. 
I think we've seen um, the Minister of Health comment uh, directly on common ailments in, in Ontario. So there's lots of encouraging signs. We've put together a very uh, comprehensive proposal uh, with the, the funding of $20 per assessment. And I want to emphasize that because our approach is slightly different than other provinces. So we've got the college who has put forward a proposal of 12 uh, common ailments or minor ailments. Uh, we would have loved to have seen that expanded to where some of the other provinces are, but I think it's a good start. Uh, and we want to get compensated based on that time and the counseling and interaction with the patient, regardless of the outcome. And as I mentioned earlier, the outcome could be uh, as simple as you're okay, go home, or it could be, here's an OTC product for you, an over-the-counter product, or it could be a prescription. In many of the provinces, they're paid only on the outcome of a prescription. And I think that uh, is a miss. Um, so we wanna make sure that that assessment gets a $20 fee. We've estimated the time to be anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes as an average of the interaction. And that's how we came up with the, the fee structure. And we think it's fair and reasonable return uh, because ultimately the savings are going to be generated by avoiding a higher cost visit to the healthcare system, be it through an emergency department um, uh, or you know uh, hospital admission or uh, as at a GP level. So, but I also think it's very important that we don't, um, we position this correctly and communicate it. This is not about competing for dollars or patients with other healthcare providers. It really should be increasing the interprofessional collaboration, um, better health, better outcomes. The, you know, the doctor's chair is not going to go, um, you know, uh, absent. People will always be present uh, there, but it's about the right person at the right time, uh, getting the right care. Same thing with the hospital beds. You know, there are a lot of bed blockers. Uh, and there's alternate levels of care we can certainly seek, but uh, you want to make sure it's that right person that you're utilizing those resources effectively and mm -hmm. appropriately. So, you know, with all of that, you know, we could see an implementation by the spring, uh, by the time we go through all the regulatory components. And that's one of the reasons why we published early our minor ailments program. Uh, and we worked with the University of Waterloo to generate the content. And we're quite confident that the way we're approaching it is clinically uh, effective, but also the best way to ensure uh, we have optimal health outcomes for the patient. For sure. I agree. I agree. And, and that is actually a very good point because uh, one of the things, so, I mean, I, you know, from my experience with COVID testing and like, you know, when I was doing the, that research on it and just to identify what are some of the barriers, um, obviously time was like the highest uh, or the biggest barrier that was identified by our profession. Um, and obviously like, you know, as we are talking to expand the scope of practice, like we're always trying to see how does this fit into the time that a pharmacist spends, um, you know, with their regular shift um, that they're working that be the 12 hours or the eight hours, depending on where they're working. Um, what are some of the challenges or barriers, you know, that exist at present uh, amongst pharmacists and pharmacy professionals um, that, you know, kind of prevent them to practice their fullest potential? Um, I know, like, the, the time is obviously one of them, but, um, you know, just trying to um, figure out, you know, from an advocacy side, like, you know, where, where do you see what are some of the valid um, challenges and the barriers? It's an interesting question. Uh, and as you sort of pull back the covers on this, it's, it's not it's not a simple answer or a simple solution that's gonna be a panacea for the challenges and the complexity of implementing services because we're, we're still in this drug distribution model, right? And as we look at trying to implement a service model within that drug distribution, 
that's not an easy uh, thing to do. So we have what is a transaction to a service and they're very different workflows, overhead costs, um, labor requirements, et cetera. And so we need to account for that. And, and we need to also understand the diversity that exists within the pharmacy ecosystem both in Ontario and, and nationally, because we have many different business models, be it an independent uh, clinical focused or co-located uh, within a clinic pharmacy to big box uh, corporate stores. So we need to understand what are the rate limiting steps and the barriers that are prohibiting the optimal implementation of services. And I think it really comes down to uh, three main things if you had to distill it uh, to a more simplified uh, framework. And the first is we need to incentivize the appropriate behaviors. So compensation, both from a payer perspective, be it government or private, uh, is important, but also making sure that the there's incentives and motivating uh, factors for for the profession. We we can't just simply ask people to do more with less. And what we've seen here uh, is an erosion of wages. We have seen challenges in some cases with workplace conditions, uh, not having the appropriate resources to support. Uh, additional services. So if I'm expected to do the same number of services and dispensing uh, activities that I was doing before, and now all of a sudden I've got 30 more to do, you know, that that could in, in a lot of ways create uh, some challenges. So we need to make sure that we enable pharmacy technicians, as an example, to be able to do some of the tech check tech type of uh, models. Uh, I also think because we're at that crossroads of automation, innovation, and disruptors, you know, and pharmacy has been somewhat slow to adopt some of these things, but uh, I'm always reminded of a story from uh, uh, a keynote that I, uh, I, I was uh, part of uh, years ago about Amazon and how Amazon uh, will never disrupt uh, pharmacy because we have regulatory barriers, we have uh, consumer behavior differences between here in the US and other countries. And I remember thinking to myself, uh, you know, we don't want to be the blockbuster video example where, you know, uh, having worked there as a student, you know, it was thought that nobody will ever um, go to a, uh, just, you know, a, a machine basically to get your uh, DVDs. And then from there, the internet and, and streaming was such a long, a long journey that nobody thought would happen because you needed broadband internet. There were so many barriers. Yes. And look what happened. Um, that model of having to go and get your service, uh, in this case, a DVD movie uh, or VHS, if you go far enough back, uh, you know, is, is obsolete. And they didn't yes. adjust their business model. And I don't think it's a fair apples to apples comparison, but I do know that when you look at the model that we deliver today, what the pandemic has done for curbside and home delivery and more acceptance of healthcare of having virtual options. Mm -hmm. The fact that I can have a phone or virtual um, video consult with a trusted healthcare professional is being more readily accepted as a means of healthcare delivery. Pre-pandemic, I don't think that was the case. The bricks and mortar, that physical interaction, which is still going to be a need and required for certain services, but if I'm simply, you know, giving you test results, um, you know, there are cases to be made that I could still do majority of those consults virtually. That's going to free up the pharmacist. The practice of the future isn't going to be sitting in a bricks and mortar uh, during your shift, but it's going to be going out to where the care needs to be. And that's going to require the automation. So it's going to require things like more mail order, central fill solutions, robotics, which we know is coming and we know can do the majority of at least chronic meds. Um, and the personalized, customized services and the omni-channel around that, how I deliver it through apps and in-store experience is where you're going to differentiate yourself uh, in that relationship with the patient 
which is really the currency that pharmacists have is that uh, touch points 14 times more than any other healthcare provider on an annual basis because of the relationship. So, you know, that's not going to go away, but the service delivery will. Uh, and we're starting to slowly see that. Um, and I think consumers are ready, patients are ready, uh, and that's the future of healthcare, let alone uh, in, in pharmacy. So that would be number two. We need to implement the automation and innovation to support service delivery. But we also need to support the profession with all of the tools to be able to implement it. Um, yes. And that, that can be everything from not just human resources, but best practices and making sure the working environment is conducive, whether it's the store configuration uh, or any number of uh, mechanisms that can be implemented um, because our model is not set up for services. It's you know really set up for that transaction um, you know, in most cases, although there are many pharmacies that are moving into a different configuration, the whole intake process is almost being uh, flipped on its uh, side. But, but I think, you know, ultimately compensation, the, the operation side and support um, and work environment are going to be critical success factors. I agree. I agree. I mean, I actually, yeah, you actually took a, answered a lot of those questions in that one um, answer. So that, um, you know, perfect. Kudos to you on that. Uh, but I think in the compensation piece, obviously, it always, um, you know, hits to where it hurts the most, right? Um, where we have seen the declining wages and, um, you know, just any thoughts on, um, you know, how OP plans to address that issue in particular? Because uh, I know that, you know, from my own conversations with my peers and colleagues, like that is one of the biggest um, concerns that we're seeing from a professional level. So, you know, how, how does OP plan to address that? I think we're looking at it holistically in terms of what can we do to better support the pharmacy profession from mental health, uh, more mental health awareness and tools to help support the practice, um, addressing the burnout issues. Um, and I think there is a correlation very directly to workplace conditions, uh, ensuring that there's appropriate breaks, ensuring that compensation wages are at a reasonable level and that there's hope. We need to provide people inspiration and hope that this is the profession they want to invest in and they can see the future of. It's not a simple answer. None of these uh, questions are, unfortunately. It's obviously got a lot of tentacles to it, but I think supply and demand is a huge factor to that. So if you look at the GTA as an example, when there's a surplus of pharmacists, the wages go down. If you go outside of the GTA and, and certainly in more rural or remote areas, the wages go up and it can be a $20 per hour difference um, in some cases. So, you know, demand and where people want to work and, and how they want to work is really important. Um, and I think we, we need to do another wage survey to better understand the data of where we are in 2021 in comparative to the last one we did, which I think was in 2016 or 2017. Um, but I think we have to ensure that, yes, the, you know, having international graduates is very important. And at a time when we had a deficit of uh, pharmacists, you know, they turned the tap on. And now I'm, I'm, you know, not convinced with the number of pharmacy schools we have in the country and the number of graduates and IPGs that we have um, what we need in terms of the profession. So there needs to be a recalibration, which isn't to say we need one versus the other or less, but I do think we need to think about, you know, how many are graduating, how many jobs are feasibly available, because that is one of the factors that's leading to it. Um, and, and I think, you know, even the proliferation of pharmacies can be a good thing as we grow and we see more and more opportunities. But, uh, and I think pharmacists, you know, if, if you can need to be uh, also cognizant of where they work and, and negotiating and having skills to negotiate for themselves uh, when it comes to uh, asking for things, uh, whether it's on a day-to-day -day operations 
perspective, um, advocating for themselves is something that we want to arm uh, the profession with when having discussions with an employer. And I don't think it's just a corporate versus independent. I think this is true across the, the spectrum of pharmacy. Uh, and we need to look at you know, ways we can empower pharmacists to have those conversations and really take control of their profession in a way that maybe has slipped over the uh, last several years. I agree. I agree. And like, um, as you said, I, I, I kind of give the same advice to, you know, folks who ask me is, is make sure you negotiate and make sure you know what a fair market value is and, you know, make sure you are able to have that conversation with whoever you're planning to work with, um, because at least then you do not have any sour lemons um, to worry about at the end. Right. Um, and I think um, one of the things, so obviously compensation is one. And the other thing that I always constantly get is like, you know, I mean, this is again, from my own learning as well, you know, trying to understand the whole advocacy piece and you know what kind of happens behind the closed doors because um, to be honest before um, I used to be an okay member for a few years when I graduated and then kind of fell, fell off the boat just because you know fees and all of that and I was truly like I think when you hear the grassroots conversation some of the conversations are to the, to the point of you know oh the association's not doing much or we're not seeing um, you know the worth of our membership value or anything like that and um, you, you kind of get convinced uh, when you're kind of in that flow and when you're in the company of um, you know people who are having the same conversation um, but you have to put yourself kind of step back and like reconfigure to see what you're seeing in front of you and I think it's always good to understand you know what happens um, in advocacy and how does advocacy actually take place to get a better understanding and an appreciation for all the work that you um, all of you do um, at OP and all the other associations because I think it's it's tremendous and backbreaking work to be honest and it's never easy because you're you're trying to do something for the future with not necessarily having all the the right pieces uh, of the puzzle in front of you. Yeah, you raised a lot of excellent points uh, and certainly salient to the last 18 months when you look at uh, an organized effort, when you have a united front and clear ask to government how you can be successful. Uh, and we're not done by any means, but uh, I think you need to give people a vision a vision for what it is that you stand for from principles to the integrity of the organization and, and not be afraid to admit when you don't get things right and, and the ability to course correct is really important. That empathy piece is also uh, critical in terms of understanding you know, and listening, a lot of listening about what are the, the challenges in the profession and how can the association really step up and um, in, in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's about managing, like advocacy is about influence, right? So your, your right. currency is your influence. And that's, you get your influence from not only just your positions and asks to government, but also from your representation. The larger the representation, the more influence you're going to have and the more ability you're going to have to unite around a common cause. This is never going to be an industry with a single voice because from pharmaceutical manufacturing to wholesale to the profession to the business of pharmacy it is very diverse um, but that doesn't mean that we can't coalesce around a common set of asks and you know I hear a lot about pharmacists uh, talk about how easy advocacy is you, you can ask I mean people can ask for dispensing fee increases they can ask for scope asking is the easy part getting the outcome is the hard part and being strategic about it and understanding that you're one cog in the entire system um, if you talk to doctors you talk to nurses you know they'll tell you the same thing they're not getting everything they want um, and and I think it's all about prioritizing your asks being disciplined in how you approach it and the most critical part to advocacy 
isn't just the association going in, but is leading the narrative on social media. It's about getting the grassroots mobilized as a profession. So it's about giving the tools to our profession to advocate, not just during election time, but all the time, because you're advocating every touch point you have with a patient and that patient's a voter. So getting them to understand that this is a valuable service, regardless of the party in power of the government of the day, they will advocate for you. And that public relations component is really what, what is gonna drive that. So it's at a digital level, it's at a grassroots, you know, boots on the ground level. And I consider public relations is very much like the, um, very much like an air force, right? It provides that cover. The grassroots uh, mobilized boots on the ground is your government relations efforts, which is developing the relationships with all parties in a nonpartisan way, but also with the government of the day, with the cabinet ministers, their political staffers on the, on the political side, you need to have those strong relationships. And you also need to have the uh, ministry officials relationships and they all change. Uh, so you're always going through a cycle of education, um, orientation to each of the individuals who come into those roles, not just during every four years, but even in the, the cycle. So I think that's important, but also we, we can't be navel gazing. Right? We have to have solutions to real problems. And it's not a partisan scenario. It's whatever government's in power is trying to solve problems. And there's always a crisis. And we're seeing, obviously, uh, one that we've never experienced before with the pandemic. But you need to come to the table with concrete solutions. Uh, and you need to be able to turn that dial of pressure when needed. And that's where the media comes in, whether it's through social digital media, like platforms of Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook, et cetera, but also through traditional means, uh, print, paper, and air. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, whether it's TV or radio and so forth. So we've done a nice job with a limited budget of having a public relations campaign. We started with ready for what's next. So really pushing the angle of, you know, this is the pharmacy profession, building morale within the profession, building respect and awareness within the general population and within government. And I think the pandemic coming out of it is going to show that that effort to drive awareness and the value of is going to lead to successes on the advocacy front, because you can't be one and done. That has to be a sustained effort. Um, and, you know, OPA and other organizations had 10 years, 12 years, 15 years of making asks uh, before I started. So I'm not starting things from scratch, but we did take a different approach to our government relations um, internally and externally, uh, our relationship building, and, uh, and it's an ongoing process. Uh, we'll continue to make those investments. We're here to defend, protect, and promote and it's important for the profession to make an investment uh, in themselves because that's the association. Yeah. We're only as strong as our, our members. And the work we do is all not-for-profit. It goes back into public relations campaigns. It goes into the resources internally to be able to have success. And, and that success is uh, never short-term. It's always thinking long-term and it takes time. Um, as we've seen with this government, a government that has demonstrated support for the profession and, and, and pharmacy in general, we're still working on getting some of these things over the finish line, but we'll get there. And I think the more success we have will position us for the inevitable uh, conversation about, oh, the drug budgets costs are going up, new government, what are we gonna do? We wanna avoid cuts at all costs, but we also have to be prepared for the fiscal realities of deficits and debts. We can't be ignorant to that with our head in the sand. So what are we gonna do? Are we an investment or are we a cost? Can we get out of the drug budget, right? Can we start getting into the primary care budget 
showing the cost savings. Uh, and that way we're not pigeonholed the way we are today. So those are all the things that strategically we're working on, but having that respect and the public support for everything we do will be uh, invaluable for our efforts moving forward. I agree. And that, that thank you so much for sharing those insights because that really helped, um, you know, for me for sure to understand the tremendous amount of work that goes behind the doors. Um, and sometimes, you know, we may not have the appreciation for everything that, you know, that you are doing um, in the back doors and that this kind of, this was supposed to, you know, help us all learn, um, you know, kind of the amount of effort it takes for one piece of the puzzle to fit the right spot that we want it to fit into. Um, and I think um, you had kind of uh, spoken to about the election. Um, and I think we are all very well aware that elections are coming up, um, you know, in the very near, I know a couple of weeks. Um, and I just wanted to kind of get your insights in terms of how the elections will affect the future of pharmacy and like, you know, what can we expect? Yeah, and as we look at the federal election, we're gonna certainly take some of the tools that uh, our partners uh, like CPHA have developed and look at how do we customize that for what isn't that far off for the provincial election in June of 2022, but essentially we want some key opinion leaders to go out and champion the cause and, and advance the narrative of why pharmacy is an important element of all parties and their platforms. We need to make sure that they understand what we bring to the table in terms of our ability to deliver patient care, our ability as a sector from an economic engine perspective. I mean, Ontario alone, we're in excess of 5 billion in economic output, um, 60,000 jobs. We have 5,700 pharmacies and over 22,000 pharmacy professionals. What an enormous uh, part of the economy. And we need to underscore that because that's important for any government. And it's about a, a nonpartisan position that can work with any party and ensure that we have an investment in our supply chain, which I think coming out of the pandemic at a federal level is critical. Uh, right now, only one party out of the three even mentions uh, about the pharmaceutical supply chain and need for domestic capacity. When we look at drug shortages or dependency on other countries when we're in a global pandemic, and that was true of PPE as it is for uh, the manufacturing of drugs, but we've seen an exodus, uh, which puts us in a vulnerable state. So we have to get away from just looking at cost, but looking at other value drivers. And that's going to require investment um, in ensuring that we have uh, the right amount of domestic capacity moving forward. So things like the PMPRB, drug pricing, uh, how does that work? Uh, educating pharmacists and the public about, it's not just about paying for drugs, it's about making sure that we're still a tier one country so you have access to innovative medicines. Absolutely, we need to generate value and, and generics are a huge part of that. And it's what I see this is as an ecosystem that is dependent on each other. The generics, you reinvest the money and savings from there into innovative medicines and so forth. Um, and true of the biologics and biosimilars, um, rather than competing or having that division amongst it, it's seen as a, um, an important part of each other to support. And I think you're seeing more of that cooperation. And PMPRB has massive changes on the horizon that could impact the availability of drugs. It could accelerate drug shortages, less choice uh, and options for Canadians. And I think when that happens, it's very hard to pull back because, you know, this is a global supply chain. Um, and, you know, that, that certainly poses risks and vulnerabilities for Canadians. The other component is PharmaCare. So, you know, uh, there's a couple of platforms that mention National Pharmacare, I think actually all three of the major parties have some mention of what their vision for National Pharmacare is. 
And pharmacare means very different things to different people. Uh, are we talking about a first dollar fully uh, public system? Are we talking about a fill the gaps, if you will, system to make sure no one's left behind, focus on rare diseases, um, things of that nature? And I think you're starting to see more uh, Canadians with the pandemic focus on, well, it's not right that somebody shouldn't access their drugs because they can't afford to. And maybe they lost their job or the deductibles uh, co-pays are too high. So we've always been very supportive of a mixed system that ensures that we have a catastrophic plan that takes care of Canadians. We remove any of the financial barriers to accessing medicines. We also protect choice, uh, choice of the plans that many Canadians enjoy, and it's fiscally responsible. So I think, you know, two of the three parties certainly seem to support that approach, which we're encouraged by. There is already the Canadian Drug Agency, which is yet to be seen exactly what that's going to do in the Pan-Canadian Pricing Alliance and working with other agencies. But um, lots of discussions there. PEI and the federal government did a deal already where there's investments uh, prior to the election in filling the gaps, which could be a, a model to work with within the federation of all the different public-private splits, because Ontario has a significant private employer plan uh, base, but, you know, other provinces don't. Uh, Quebec already has a pharmacare program. So, you know, I don't think uh, a cookie cutter approach or a single solution is going to work. Like everything in Canada, it's, uh, it's very diverse. So I think we need to ensure that the model is flexible and work with the provinces, regardless of the political affiliation or ideology. But at the end, as Canadians, we value our public system. It's, it's, it's not a single payer system and it's not always universal, but and it can always be improved. And, and we want to be as pharmacists at the forefront of shaping that in a way that's not detrimental, but actually increasing and improving uh, health outcomes. For sure, for sure. And I mean, obviously, uh, this is uh, an important question, even I guess for the profession and for our patients to be asking our candidates, right, as we are deciding who to vote for, um, because it has a direct implication on, you know, whatever healthcare you're going to be seeking or currently seeking um, right now that you're requiring. Um, and I think um, I, I just as I'm wrapping up, um, just a couple more questions for you. Um, and this was, again, one of them was to highlight the role that OPA has, um, especially with your leadership, um, you know, in, in creating the diversity task force at OPA. And like, you know, to my knowledge, um, you were one of the first um, leaders to, you know, kind of have this open dialogue and discussion around inclusivity within the profession itself. Um, and, you know, very impressed with the work. I had the opportunity to sit on the first um, inaugural task force committee. And, um, you know, I would love to just um, hear of some of the achievements that have um, come out of that task force. Yeah, what you're seeing more and more throughout uh, businesses is this idea of having ESG, which is the environment, societal, uh, impact your corporate responsibility, social responsibility, and governance, good governance practices, and everything you do. So it's not a you know one and done scenario, but it's a sustained effort to make sure that your employees, all of the um, outputs of the organization have that lens of the equity and diversity and inclusivity, and also that all your committees and board reflect that. And the composition of the board and staff are important um, as leaders. You want to make sure you have a diverse, uh, not just in culture and ethnicity, but also in thinking. You don't want the same thinking in everyone. And I think that's really important at a board and strategic level. We want to have the right skill sets around the board. And, and we want to reflect the profession we serve, um, which we know is very diverse, both from gender and ethnicity perspective. So the effort really is for OPA to be committed to continuing to having dialogue uh, with 
all all people uh, understanding you know new barriers to existing barriers because we have a lot of work to do as a society as we have seen um, and also as an organization and specifically we want to make sure that we have um, concrete programs that deliver on the commitment of being inclusive and that is everything from the stock images we use uh, to the education we produce, to working with the schools of pharmacy and ensuring that their curriculum are reflective and it's not just a one-hour uh, part of the overall program. Um, you know, I think of uh, some of the, th the discussions we had at our EDI or our diversity task force uh, last summer about, you know, even testing uh, skin uh, products, um, you know, uh, where, you know, it's predominantly uh, white people that are tested. Um, and, and one thing that, that I learned was even not having that unconscious bias, right? Not even understanding that things as simple as Band-Aids have a, a, a cultural bias because for a long time, they were only for Caucasian people, right? Um, right. And uh, having diverse kids that are mixed race, uh, you know, I, never, I, I didn't even think about Band-Aids, right? So it's creating that awareness. It's having the conversations and it's not, it's, it's not being afraid to tackle some of the uncomfortable conversations that we're all coming at this with the right intentions, but we do have our um, unconscious biases that we need to address. So I think those are, are really critical to continue to have. And also a mentorship program. You know, when I think about trying to uh, encourage people to run at the uh, level of an OPA board or to be involved in committees at the association, you know, we want to encourage people to run. We want it to be an environment that fosters you know, creative thought and um, get away from groupthink and people feel comfortable and confident to be part of the association. You know, our senior leadership team has changed over the years. We have, you know, uh, two, two females, two males. Um, uh, we have, uh, you know, cultural diversity as well in, in the four team members that we have. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the reflection of our board now that uh, does represent more cultural diversity. Um, and, and that's uh, something that we'll continue to work on uh, to make sure that we follow through in our commitment. Um, it's such an important topic. And now I see a, a direct correlation to mental health as well. You know, are, are there limitations and barriers based on race, as an example, to mental health tools um, and supports um, in, in different work settings as well? Uh, we know burnout is a huge part of the profession and it's only getting worse. So we need to step up in the same way we did on diversity, inclusivity and equity, because in my view, it's a right to have access to mental health services. We have to continue to destigmatize mental health. Uh, and and be uh, leaders in in providing that. So that's going to be our specific emphasis over the next twelve months. That's tied into it. Um, but we've incorporated ESG into everything we do. That's fantastic. And thank you again. Um, you know, for starting this task force because I really do. Um, you know, see very promising actions coming out of it. And um, you know, look forward to creating an even more inclusive pharmacy profession where everyone feels like they have a safe um, space where they can um, have their voice heard. Um, and I guess just to wrap this up, uh, and you know, how, how do you describe the future of pharmacy in the next five years? Well, I'm reminded of another story. Happens to be uh, about Amazon, but uh, it was one of the, the keynotes that uh, I was referencing earlier that um, I'm not even sure I told the story because we got off to a uh, yes. another uh, great area as we were, we were chatting. But um, mm -hmm. it's about this uh, farm equipment company in uh, northern Manitoba. I've told the story a few times, but I think it's worth uh, telling again. So it was family owned for generations uh, and they would deliver heavy equipment to tractors and things that were mission critical because if you're trying Tractor is down for more than five days. That's, you know, that, that means your whole business is paralyzed. 
So it's small business, and it was largely based on reputation, relationships, and, and the family's connections. But if, if Amazon uh, can disrupt that business, they'll disrupt anything. So you know what they did was they came in with a service that paired it with like an Uber mechanic. So not only did they deliver the part in less than 48 hours, and that was whether it was a business day or weekend, they could pair it with the uh, mechanic to fix the fractor. So you were downtime was two to three days versus sometimes seven to 10 days. So if you think about the ROI, um, but if they're targeting businesses like that, no business is immune to disruption. And it doesn't have to be just Amazon. There's tons of disruptors out there, innovative ways of delivering services. So when someone asked me what the future of pharmacy is, well, you don't want it to be that tractor company. You don't want it to be that uh, blockbuster video. You want to make sure that you're you're making investments to deliver the care that people want because it's going to be empowering the patient. So access to virtual care, having more automation and choice. So yes, bricks and mortar will always be there. Pharmacies will be accessible, and that healthcare advice, whether it's delivered virtually or in in store, will always be a, a central part. But you can deliver it in many different ways, and we see that with the Maple app and other virtual tools, MedMe, MedAssist, uh, that that offer that um, technology to enable it. Um, but all, all of this, regardless of the technology platform you use, what we need to make sure is we preserve that relationship and the access between a healthcare provider like a pharmacist and a patient, because everything will revolve around there. And I've seen different stores, even in the U.S., where they've created a wellness center and the whole pharmacy is in the middle of the store, not at the back or side. Um, and and, it, and it, there's no counter, right? Like literally uh, everything is delivered to the person, um, but the the, per, the person and the healthcare provider are, are met at the beginning uh, and the intake is very different. So, you know, I think that's one model. There are many models of care um, and not always being tied to the bricks and mortar, I think will give us even more value and access to doing so many different things. Let's unlock the value of the expertise, support it uh, through the profession. And I think that ultimately is going to drive whatever future technology exists. Um, we know that, you know, people are using their phones more and we have to catch up to that uh, service delivery without compromising the quality uh, of the outcome. And I think that's gonna be really the key. I agree. I agree. I think innovation and just being open to change is um, is is really what will help us, um, you know, kind of, I guess, continue our legacy forward and um, you know adapt to the changing times. Because obviously, the expectations of our patients are changing as new generations coming in, and they're, they're requiring different things, different ways, delivered in a different manner, right? So, just making sure that we're open. And um, thank you so much for for those. Well, even uh, you know. <laughs> One, one last thing on that, because it's a great point about open to change. When I first went out uh, talking about uh, asymptomatic testing for COVID, yes. um, there, was, there was quite a bit of opposition. There was, like you would see in an adoption curve, there was about 10% really uh, you know, early adopters and innovators. Um, and then the curve goes as people become more accepting of and comfortable with the protocols mm -hmm. in place. But now in the last call for participants, for the unvaccinated teachers to go into pharmacies uh, for testing in Ontario, we have over 1,200 pharmacies putting their wow. hand up. Uh, and it's growing because people are more comfortable with the uh, health and safety measures they put in their stores, whether it's the barriers, the PPE, uh, following IPAC protocols. Um, and they know that, you know, by doing vaccinations and even asymptomatic testing that's been in place, you are at some risk. So we're looking at everything from symptomatic to asymptomatic testing, 
rapid antigen to PCR mobile uh, on site to curbside to drop off to in-store. So we, we've got that area covered and we'll continue, I think, to see more and more pharmacies put their hand up. And that's because uh, progress at the beginning is tough. Um, doing things outside your comfort zone uh, is not easy. And there's often the, you know, if you listen to a lot of the podcasts about leadership and, you know, what are the traits of good leaders? Well, making people uncomfortable with an idea because it's outside their comfort zone is probably the hallmark of this is a good idea, right? Because that's challenging status quo and it's preparing you for the future. And nothing is immune to threats and, and risks, but but certainly I think we, we've demonstrated that it can work even when there's some initial opposition. And there will always be a, a cohort of people that will want say, well, I'm not going to do this. You know, I'm comfortable doing what I'm doing. Uh, and as long as it's voluntary, as long as there's an option, then I think we should forge ahead. Otherwise, you know, we will be left behind and uh, we don't want that. I agree. I agree. And I, I recall the times as we were quite divisive in terms of, you know, the views we held as a profession. So, uh, no, a uh, great story. And that was, uh, that's a perfect way of actually ending this segment because I think um, it really is the moral is, you know, let's be open to change, let's be innovative, um, and let's challenge some of our barriers um, just so that we can break them and forge the way ahead. Thank you so much, Justin, for your time and, um, you know, those valuable insights because I'm definitely, I learned quite a lot from this conversation and I hope, um, I'm sure the listeners will also learn. And I also wanted to take this opportunity to highlight that you also have a podcast running <laughs> uh, titled Pharmacist Matters. So please uh, be sure to check that out. Um, you know, we'll, we'll link it below and so that you would have that. And, um, you know, I'm sure Justin, um, just the way he has shared some valuable insights here, we'll learn a lot more through that as well. So if you have one new follower in me there, Justin. <laughs> well, it's all um, about being together and supporting yes. each other. And, uh, you know, I think it's great what you're doing and uh, look forward to your future podcast as well. Thank you very much. Well, with that, I'm just going to wrap this up and thank you again for your time and we'll see you next time.